But what those events did is it, you know, it built, started this ember of resilience in us. And essentially it, it allowed us to actually realize what we're truly capable of when we're put under the pressure. And without those moments, there's no way we'd be speaking to you today as, you know, we are professional adventurers in, in, in the sense that we make a living off taking on big challenges around the world, showing that ordinary people like us can achieve these things and, and speaking about it. And without those big horrendous moments that were tough at the time, um, none of that would have happened. Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of Resilient People. I'm your host, Janet Finaki. Resilient People features my conversations with regular, but what I like to call extraordinary people from around the world who are admired for their resilience. They've overcome a major challenge, found a purpose from it, and now help others be resilient too. Resilient People started when I was spending a lot of time in a cancer center with my husband who was living with terminal brain cancer. I wondered about the big and challenging life events that people deal with and how they manage them and even if they use those experiences as a purpose to help others. If you're like me and get inspired by the average people who have overcome challenges and done something positive to impact others, then this is the show for you. I call myself a resilience explorer. I'm not a psychologist or a coach but someone who's been through a very hard experience in losing my husband when he was only 51 years old. The tools that I had in place to keep a positive mindset are similar to how many of my guests got through their challenges. I'm particularly interested in what makes people resilient, what they do differently to be that way, learn about their purpose as well as tips and takeaways to maintain a positive mindset. In 1996, I took a trip to Thailand with my then-boyfriend, who would become my husband, Adam. While we were gently treading water in the Andaman Sea, about 100 feet off the coast of Phuket Island, I felt my feet being tugged downward, each time my head bobbing under the surface of the water. I was caught in an undertow, and if it weren't for Adam being there that day and knowing what to do, there's no doubt that I would have drowned. To this day, I won't swim in the ocean. Why am I sharing this story with you? Well, it's really relevant to the story that my guests will share on this episode. They are The Tempest 2, friends from the UK, Tommy Cofield and James Whittle. They're two lads who decided, with no previous experience, to row a rowboat across the Atlantic Ocean, basically on a whim. You can imagine what I was thinking while hearing about their voyage. We spoke about what led them to going through with this adventure, the challenges that came with it, what they learned from their months at sea, and the advice that they would share with others. I spoke with them over Zoom from my home in Toronto to Tommy's home in the Catswolds and James in London. Where I'd like to start with you guys oh. is where you met, because from what I red it was at red bull when you were both working at red bull was that right yeah it was we we met working for red bull over 10 years ago now in the uk we were both on the student program so we basically got paid to be those guys at university who threw parties and gave people free crates of red bull and worked on all the cool events and it was we, we call it a job but a tool order for what we were doing we were basically getting paid to have fun um, but that, that's where we met on many, many drunken nights, too many vodka Red Bulls to, to count and, and 
to be honest, I don't think we've either touched a can of Red Bull since those days uh, because we overconsumed to such an extent. It seems like an appropriate place for uh, two adventure-seeking guys to strike up a friendship. Yeah, you think that, wouldn't you? But I don't. We weren't too uh, adrenaline-driven before this, um, which the Red Bull side of things would suggest. But yeah, it was. I guess an interesting kind of change from now is in our job at that point was to help market some of the most extreme athletes in the world who are the pinnacle and the best at what they do. And then we ended up being on the other end of that spectrum, marketing ourselves. It, you know, we, we're quite happy to admit that when we start these things, we are the worst in the world at that discipline at what we do. And it's that process of getting better that is what's rewarding, I think. How did the idea for the Tempest 2 come about then? No, I, I wish there was a big romantic answer to this. Um, but essentially, I was at a, uh, a pub in East London called the Dickens Inn, which is on a harbour. And I was there because there was a, an event going on, which is called the Clipper World Yacht Race. And it's basically a circumnavigational yacht race around the world, but civilians can enter it. And my mum had actually entered this race and she had raced a, a huge yacht with a team from London down to Rio in, in Brazil. And I was at an event where all the yachts were coming back in after, you know, a year at sea. Um, and my mum was there with her team and, you know, amazing achievement and lots of tears. And I was literally stood on my own at the bar watching all this unfold and really kind of had a bit of a, uh, a realisation that, you know, I'd, I'd never really achieved anything to to really be truly proud of. You know, I'd played sport here and there, but but nothing to any like real credible level. And secondly, I realized my mum was now officially more of a badass than I was. So I had a couple of beers, James. Yeah, nothing. She still is, to be fair. Yeah. And um, yeah. I text James. Uh, James was at a birthday party at this time. Um, so he'd had a couple of drinks as well. And, you know, it was three or four text messages. I basically Googled at the bar, biggest adventures in the world. And somewhere on page two of Google was this ocean rowing. And, you know, I thought, right, my mum sailed the Atlantic. Let's let's go and row it. And literally, we've got the text messages from that day. And um, it's signed off with a load of emojis. And I think one big decision we made that day, which was definitely enabled by, by the alcohol, was we then went and told everyone around us that we're now going to be legendary adventurers. And we woke up the next day kind of a little bit blurry-eyed looking at these text messages, thinking, like, what the hell are we, the hell are we talking about? But we told everyone, so we now have this social obligation to, to go and do it. And to say it out loud, know, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that is where the Tempest 2 began and the start of this, this crazy journey to where we are today. What was the first adventure that you went on? It would have been the it probably was the row, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, it was. That that was our that was our first thing. So st- straight in the deep end, you know, we, we did have to learn how to row. So that the whole run into it felt like an adventure in itself. You know, trying to raise quite a large sum of money to put the boat into the water. We you know we raise a decent sum of money for Make a Wish Foundation and brain tumor research, uh, and all those things you know had their own challenges and you know felt like adventures in their own right. And then obviously we went down to the coast here in the UK. Um, in southwest wales to, to learn how to row and got fully put through our paces by 
actually some 70 year old Welsh women who took the opportunity to call us every name under the sun, mainly because we didn't know what we we're doing, but also because we were English um, and they were Welsh. And that's kind of just how it goes. So, so that was interesting. How much time was there between the point where you guys had your drinks and you were, you know, saying to your friends that you were going to be doing this to the point that you were in the water doing it? It was 18 months from ideation to leaving the harbour. And essentially in ocean rowing, which, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know anything about it. You basically have a, a time period each year, which is the best to do a transatlantic crossing. And it, and it ranges between kind of November, December to about mid-Jan, Feb. And that's basically because the weather is meant to be favourable. It's, it's outside of the hurricane season. You have a following wind. So we were like, right, we, I think we had the idea in June 2014. And then December 2015, we were in Gran Canaria. And to give you some context of what we were trying to achieve, so we were getting into a seven-metre rowing boat. And we were trying to row 3,000 miles from Gran Canaria to Barbados. So right across the South Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, it could take anywhere between 35 days to 70 days. And we were on our own, no race, no support boat, um, just the two of us on this tiny little rowing boat. And kind of that was the adventure that lay ahead of us. Why a rowing boat? Oh, no idea. No idea. It, I, th I think it probably... And why alone? Like, yeah, it probably felt like the thing that was the one-upmanship from uh, from Tom's <laughs> mum. You know, you can sail across it, but we'll row <laughs> in, a, in a tiny boat. How long did it take you? Uh, we, we were at sea for 54 days in total. So... It's a long time. You know, yeah, it's a, it's a long time, but it's it's funny. When we look back on it, It's it was almost a, a journey of two halves. The first 50% of the road, the first 1,500 miles was... Um, really, really, really tough. We were complete novices. We had no experience rowing, but obviously, let alone sailing or being at sea. And, you know, we, we couldn't sleep well. We weren't eating right. We were really struggling with the shift pattern because, you know, we did it in a two-hour shift pattern. On, uh, one, one of us was on, one of them was off. So there's always always in the water. And when James is rowing for two hours, I'm trying to sleep, I'm stretching, I'm eating, and then we swap 24 hours a day until we hit the Caribbean and to put your body through that strain you know you can't really train for that on land um, and when we got into it, the first two weeks we were just you know our bodies were just screaming for for some kind of rest and you know actually took the, the midway point one of the big events of the, the whole trip is we went through a big storm which was actually a hurricane it was Hurricane Alex um, and that was a real tipping point for us because we went into that storm complete novices still really struggling not eating very well etc and came out of it with this unbelievable fire just to get to the other side and that second half of the trip um, was a complete kind of polar opposite to the first we became completely at home on the boat we kind of realized our purpose on the trip we were there to enjoy it and experience it rather than worry about any records or times and uh, the second the second half of the Atlantic was was something that I think we both look back on as probably one of the, the greatest things of our lives, really. Can you remember what the hardest part, maybe it was different, you know, for each of you, which was the hardest uh, part? Yeah, it's, it's still vivid memory etched into uh, into my brain, the trauma. Um, <laughs> but I think they're quite different because the, the beginning was so, so tough because it was a proper shock to the system. But at the same time, you know, we both knew that we totally put ourselves in that position. You know, we were motivated to do it. Um, 
motivated to like go into the unknown and like push ourselves whereas with the hurricane we were you know we'd already kind of come to terms with that first part but it was completely out of our hands like we had no say in the matter whereas early on it felt like you know we could just go back and call the whole thing off and that that was kind of an option at that point whereas during the hurricane it was whatever happens to us happens to us and I know when we first went through the hurricane or when it first hit us we were you know dealt with it quite poorly in the sense that it felt like quite personal you know why is this always happening to us there was something going wrong on the boat every single day and at that point it was still quite early on and we you know why is why does this keep happening to us what have we done to deserve this sort of stuff and then you realize that that's just that's just life in general and especially that's just life on when you're rowing an ocean is things are going to go wrong and it's more about how you deal with it when it happens makes sense how about you tom as james said the hurricane was so hard to deal with because everything we were trying to do was basically to get to the other side so we were eating to get energy to row we were sleeping to row everything we did was around this one purpose and when something like a big storm comes along, which you have absolutely no control over and not only stops you, but pushes you back over a hundred miles. It was so denting for our morale. And I think that was one of our biggest lessons was when we came out of that hurricane, you know, we'd, we'd kind of flipped our mindset kind of upside down. And, and we don't know when it was in the, we were basically in this cabin for three days um, in this huge storm, uh, which you can imagine, you know, our boat is essentially a bathtub. It's made out of MDF. It's got a resin over it. And we're in a, a single bed size cabin together. And, you know, we did react to it badly, but then we had a pretty firm conversation with ourselves, you know, about eight to 10 hours into this saying, do you know what, let's, let's use this big negative as a positive. And as I said before, we were struggling at this point. We, we needed rest. We couldn't sleep very well. So we now had a three day period of enforced rest. Obviously, the caveat is it's quite hard to rest in a hurricane, but still we, we weren't on the oars and we could eat as much as we possibly could. And, you know, I think that was a real turning point, not just on the row, but in general for our kind of mindset, because I think we realized and we, we pushed ourselves so far out of our normal comfort zone that something clicked. We, uh, we got capsized in the middle of the night. We were in big swell. It was 4 a.m. James and I had just swapped over. I fell asleep in the cabin. And then woke up, you know, on the ceiling um, and we've been completely barreled by a huge rogue wave. And as you can imagine, it was it was chaos. And the boat luckily self-righted because we packed it well with our ballast water. I came out onto the deck. We're a foot underwater. James has been thrown into the sea and all. And, you know, you tell this story, but you've got to imagine it that it's pitch black. And all you've got is this dinner plate sized disc of light from our head torches. And, you know, we're 600 miles away from land. On this tiny rowing boat which is upside down our spare oars have floated away a load of our fresh water has floated away james is genuinely lucky to be alive because if he didn't have his harness on he, he would have died 100 percent. we're thinking the boat is sinking and you know it was moments like that that when we look back on were really tough at the time but when we speak to other people who have rowed an ocean as well and we've done this a lot we, we give a lot of advice to people and we, we speak to them after and i said you know what we, we barely got wet like we had amazing weather the whole way. We did it in 32 days. Um, and, you know, it, it was so quick. It was, it was amazing. It was hard and everything. But they, they didn't have any of these moments. And at the time, you know, we'd trade that. We'd be like, yeah, we don't want these. We don't want these things to happen to us. We want plain sailing. 
But what those events did is it, you know, it built, started this ember of resilience in us. And essentially it, it allowed us to actually realize what we're truly capable of when we're put under the pressure. And without those moments, there's no way we'd be speaking to you today as, you know, we are professional adventurers in, in, in the sense that we make a living off taking on big challenges around the world, showing that ordinary people like us can achieve these things and, and speaking about it. And without those big, horrendous moments that were tough at the time, um, none of that would have happened. But given that you both were in this boat with the chaos and everything that was going on, you, James, nearly losing your life. Like, what is it that you're kind of thinking to give yourself that mental stability? Good question. Firstly, it would be a totally different story, I think, if we were to, to do it by ourselves and we're first to admit that it wouldn't happen if we do it by ourselves. We rely on each other loads for, to, to get to the finish or to climb, whatever we're doing. And that goes for both the, the good times and the really tough times. So that thing that we, you know, use a lot, whether we knew it at the beginning, what we do now is like the power of humor and being able to laugh through these ridiculous situations that we find ourselves in, almost, out, almost just out of a psychological response to, you know, what are we doing in this situation? You know, it's probably slightly unprepared, which was definitely the case in the row. And as, as we've gone, gone on, you know, our adventures have got bigger and a bit scarier and, you know, required different elements of skill and things as well. And they've all kind of built into the next one, which has been great. But humour is something that kind of goes, goes throughout and especially in the tough times. What did your mom say out of curiosity when you were done your row? Oh, man, the, I think the <laughs> row was pretty tough on the parents. I mean, I, I think... Imagine basically because the whole row was essentially her fault because she had, <laughs> she had done the sale it was her fault so I don't think she slept for two months um because I know that if something had happened she would have probably have put a lot of the responsibility on herself mm. but it, it's, it's interesting how they've reacted to our adventures over the years they now just live kind of like vicariously through us so you know they're like what's the next thing what's the next thing and I mean, for, our, for our, our girlfriends, it's slightly different. You know, whenever we think of a new adventure, we have to have a strategy of how we tell them. And it's usually we, <laughs> we'll go to a nice restaurant as a four. And <laughs> as soon as we do that, they're like, what are you planning? Um, and, uh, you know, we try and, you know, maybe sugarcoat it slightly to the risks. And it's always that, you know, like Elcat looked so dangerous. And, you know, it can be, you know, more people die from vending machines in the US than climbing Elcat which is such a stupid stat, but it's what we use to try and justify it. So what were some of the, the things that you learned about yourselves along these adventures? Some of the things that you thought, wow, I really didn't think that I had it in me, but here I am. The main thing that stands out is that this renewed sense of what we're potentially capable of. I think now we view opportunities or challenges or you know, like big goals as things that it's not, you know, if we can do them, it's, it's how or when. And we approach everything with this mentality of we can do it. It's figuring out the next steps in the process for that rather than just shutting something, something down straight away. And it's something that we say quite a lot and we boiled it down to basically removing the word can't. It's 
something that you know loads of businesses a lot of people that look to challenges even something as simple as a marathon you know their, their go-to thing is you know i can't do that i've never done that or i would never be able to do that i don't have it in me and by putting ourselves in these situations and going through these adventures it's essentially helped us remove that word and instead view opportunities with a sense of we can do it how are you tom speaking for myself is how big a risk you can take and, and, and kind of the the weight versus the reward of it and we obviously we speak all around the world on the topic of growth mindset and resilience and potential and whatnot and I think the most common question we get asked actually from people is you know how, how did you leave your jobs and you know for a lot of people leaving their job is is the big adventure you know that everyone has an idea uh, oh, I'd love to do that. Or I think I'd be good at that. But 99% of people don't execute on that. And I think people are fascinated that, you know, what was the, what was the kind of the thinking behind leaving our comfortable jobs in London and, and becoming these professional adventurers? I think what we've basically gained is this rationale of basically asking, like, you know, what is, what is the worst thing that could happen? And we often build up this huge negative kind of sphere of influence around big decisions and big change. You know, if I leave my job, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to make any money. I'm going to be in loads of debt. I'm going to lose my house. My, my wife's going to leave me. Everything's going to go completely upside down and it will be a disaster. Whereas actually, when you look at it rationally, for, for most people that, you know, we know, not everyone, this is still I'll put a caveat against that. You know, the worst case scenario is you leave your job you try something out for six months, it bombs, it doesn't work, and then you just go get another job. And But in those six months, you've learned more than you have in the last 10 years of your previous job. And that's that's usually the worst case scenario. And I think that's one thing we've really gained from these adventures is just looking at risk in a totally different way. Because, you know, when we landed in Barbados after spending two months at sea, you know, the risk of leaving, leaving, leaving our jobs when we got back wasn't even, it wasn't even on the scale. It was like, well, if we can put ourselves through this and how hard can it be just to, you know, work hard and persevere and be resilient when trying to start a new business. And I think that's a, a really powerful thing that, that people can take away from pushing themselves outside their comfort zone on a regular basis is that perception of risk. So you're touching on something that I think it was in your last episode that I just listened to of your podcast where you were talking about reviewing your fails of 2020. Why did you guys feel that that was an important thing to talk about? I think, yeah, it's, it's weird. We, we live in this world of, you know, Instagram positivity and the, through this lens of everything is, has to be success. And I actually saw a really good example of this, but there's a, um, a venture capital fund somewhere in San Francisco, I can't remember the name of them, but you know, most VC funds, they have their portfolio on their website and this company exited for this amount and we made this much, et cetera, et cetera. But they have a whole page dedicated to their failures. And it's like, you know, had a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg to be on the initial seed round of Facebook, turned it down. Met with Brian Chesky from Airbnb, turned him down. And they, you know, and they put next to it, would have made 3 billion or whatever it is. And they, they celebrate those successes because it's part of the journey. And I think, especially with the last year, you know, when everyone went into lockdown on a global level, there seemed to be this, this weird kind of expectation that you now have time. So you have to learn Greek. You have to lose like 20 pounds and become this Adonis. You have to bake bread. You have to do your garden, all this stuff. 
which is just total rubbish. Like, like we just led around and watched Netflix and, you know, that's just what we did. And I think, you know, failures, failures are basically what make up successes. They're just part of the process. They're, they're a step. And, you know, we've had moments running business for the last five years where, you know, we have this, this, this big letdown, a big client leaves, or, you know, the last 12 months we've been starting a new business. We've been raising, raising money. We have an investor pull out at the 11th hour and it's a huge thing. And then six months later, it's like, wow, you know, thank God they pulled out because we've now got a better situation. And it's just having, you know, if you can have that, the clarity to step back and say, okay, that's a failure, but it will write itself down the line. And this is how we'll respond to it. And, you know, that for us is, you know, resilience as a topic is so interesting at the moment because, you know, we listen to a few of the, the guests you've had on and resilience can often mean 10 different things to 10 different people. You know, it can be like early, early life trauma or dealing with like huge kind of sadness and grief. But, you know, for us, resilience is turning an obstacle into an opportunity. How do you kind of boil down what you've done into a relatable message for people to say, yeah, I think I can make a change? People expect results immediately. If you look at weight loss or training for a marathon, trying to get quicker, they do it for a month, they see no results, and then they, and then they bin it off. Um, and that, that's usually the barrier. But actually, you've got to consistently do something for a long, long time to see any kind of change. Um, and, and that's something that you just you just learn through through the process route. Really. I'm going to ask you one more thing, actually. Um, do you always raise money for charity with every one of your adventures? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, so we who have benefited so far? So uh, Brain Tumor Research, yeah, Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, the climb we actually did in partnership with the Honold Foundation. What's that? Um, Can you describe that? Yeah, so it's uh, it's Alex Honold's actual charity. It's, it's his foundation, and it's a solar... Um, based charities so they provide power to like firstly houses and people in need in the US so people that are struggling to make their bills and uh, are on benefits I, I don't know if that translates over there um, but then secondly uh, to people in really remote areas where electricity is uh, is sparse and I think there's still a billion people in the world you know without access to power and the Honol Foundation are taking that challenge on to provide power to, to people that need it, whether it's in South America or in, in Africa and all over the world. So it's just quite a nice partnership for us to do, especially with the climbing link with Alex. And then, yeah, the chance that we managed to, to see him on the, um, on the ledge kind of brought it full circle. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, we, we tend to do every challenge for a charity. And I think going forward, it, it'll be another environmental charity of some sort. And how many adventures have you done now since 2015? Um, so what are we on, Tom? The, we did the Atlantic. The big ones are the Atlantic. We rode motorbikes from London to the Sahara. We'd never ridden bikes and we learned in four days and then left <laughs> the day after passing our test. Amazing. I know, which was quite dangerous, I won't lie. <laughs> um, then Patagonia was a big one. And then El Cap was the most recent big one. So we, we basically do one big one every two years. We are gagging to get back out there and do something. Well, um, when you're ready to scale the CN Tower. <laughs> there we go. Maybe that's it. Maybe <laughs> Visit Toronto can be our next big partner. Exactly. We'd love to have you. <laughs> love that. So can you imagine doing it? Maybe you haven't crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat, but like Tommy and James alluded to, you may have another challenge that you set out for yourself. 
pushing you out of your comfort zone, having you leave what's familiar and comfortable behind to tackle something scary, uncertain, and in some cases, life-threatening. How does that idea make you feel? And if you've already done something like this, did you go away from it thinking, if I can handle that, I can do anything. It's gotta be an amazing and empowering feeling. To learn more about these two fun guys, you can find them at thetempest2.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resilient People. Please subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. And I'd love it if you'd share Resilient People with your friends and family. It would mean a lot. If you've got a way that helps you be resilient, have a story of resilience to share, or know someone who does, drop me a line, info at resilientpeople.ca. This show was created by me, Janet Fanaki, with thanks to my team at Edit Audio, editor Kanika Codrington, and producers Sophie Shin and Steph Coburn. On the next episode of Resilient People, I'll have Jeanette Fennell. She and her husband, along with their nine-month-old son, were kidnapped in the trunk of their car. She went on to start a car safety organization called Kids and Cars. She has an unbelievable story, and we had a great conversation on how this scary situation motivated her to make a big change that would benefit people everywhere. That's on the next episode of Resilient People. Another thing I'd like to tell my Toronto and area listeners about is the second annual online auction for the Adam Fanaki Brain Fund. This is a special initiative that my children and I started after Adam's passing in 2020 from brain cancer. Aside from the fundraising that we do throughout the year, we've held this special event to allow you to bid on fantastic items that have been donated by businesses and individuals. All proceeds fund programs and services that are used by brain tumor patients and their caregivers in Canada. Go to 32auctions.com slash Adam Fanaki Brain Fund to see the over 60 items that are up for bids and see what you can take home. The link will be in this episode's show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'm Janet Fanaki. See you next time on Resilient People. Bye for now. Divorce sucks, but it doesn't have to be all bad. Hi, I'm Leanne Townsend, a family law lawyer and partner at the law firm Brody Thorning LLP. I'm also the host of the Divorcing Well podcast. Divorcing Well aims to help provide listeners with the tools and knowledge they need to support themselves legally, financially, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I want listeners to tune into Divorcing Well because they are looking for the knowledge and inspiration to get them through the rough days. And on the positive days, they will gain the tools that they need to heal and move through the various stages of grief that divorce can bring. Each week, I interview an expert or a guest who's been out there in the trenches going through divorce themselves, sharing their stories, their knowledge, their inspiration with listeners, so that ultimately I can help them to divorce well. You can find my podcast on all podcast platforms or visit my website at www.leannetownsend.ca. Mm-hmm.